it's incredible. It's very rewarding. It's also, you know, devastating. Mm. But, you know, and as I said, like, I have that caretaker personality anyhow. So that part doesn't bother me so much. I mean, it's just the overwhelming sense of responsibility that I have is the, the primary thing that I wasn't, like, aware that that's what I was taking on. everyone, Anastasia here, and it's time for another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. This time around, we're talking to some incredible female farmers. Farmers are extremely hardworking and face difficult struggles every day. On top of that, female farmers can face additional challenges, like discrimination, lack of role models, and trying to find that elusive work-life balance we supposedly can find if we work hard enough, but also don't work hard enough. It, it's, it's complicated. Women can and do farm everything. But today, I'm sharing with you my chats with three farmers producing cheese, veggies, and flowers. I'm eager for you to hear what they have to say, so let's jump right in. First up is Roberta of Crooked Mile Cheese. Hi, Roberta. Thanks for coming on That's Rad. Very happy to be here. So to start off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and about Crooked Mile Farm? Okay. Well, I am, well, I'm an empty nester now, I guess, but I originally moved to Vermont. My parents moved to Vermont when I was a teenager to Albany, Vermont, up in the Northeast Kingdom. Then after college, I worked doing environmental advocacy and forestry work in a number of different places. Then my family moved here to Waterford about 16 years ago. We bought this property and sort of came into the farming aspect backwards. We bought the house with some land that had been neglected and abandoned but had been a farm in its earlier life. And we just started collecting animals and uh, building it into a farm sort of backwards. We started with the animals and then ended up developing the cheese business after that. You say it so casually, like you just started collecting animals. <laughs> yeah, I just started animals. cheese business. Like, um, so really, like 12 years of hard work. <laughs> yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. So you, you bought the farm, but it wasn't like an operational farm. What made you decide to start that up again and and start, as you say, just collecting animals? (laughs) Well, it really was the collecting of animals that started the whole thing. I guess I have come to realize that being a caretaker is is a dominant part of my personality. So, you know, I just – I was a, you know – homeschool mom I came I mean, we moved here in part to take, help take care of my mother who was ill and um so the animals were just a natural extension of that I guess and then it moved into the land and I had the environmental advocacy background I was also a, a high school teacher on and off you know while we lived here and before we moved here 
we moved here from Alaska, where I had been a teacher in, in rural Alaska. So when when we moved here, it was we had moved around a lot. With the children were young, so when we moved here, they were like eight and six, and um, we're just very happy to be in one place in a house. But the house was beautiful as a post and beam house, but it had been really you know neglected for a long time. So that kind of started it was uncovering what was here and you know, taking down the, the old tile ceilings and finding these gorgeous beams and finding initials carved into one of the beams and just sort of, you know, and finding all the whiskey bottles under the attic floorboards and, you know, things like that. It was like just a romantic connection to all the people that had cared for this place before us and, you know, well before this house was built or Caucasians lived here as well. We just really felt that pull of caring for this particular spot. And uh, so we started, you know, like with some sheep just to help us cut down the fields, which had been completely overgrown. And then, you know, met we met the man who lived in this house and owned all this property in the, I think he lived here in the 20s or 30s. He still lives in the area. He lives just up the road. And so, wow. you know, that just added so much to it to know how he had, you know, he helped support his family by milking just a few cows in our little barn. And the place that is now our farm stand was where he had the milk that got picked up. And, you know, it was the where they kept the milk cool in the stream that he diverted from across the street to run through it and keep the milk cans cool. So it's just that connection with the history of what had been here. And then adding that sort of our environmental concern and care and um, learning more and more about how, you know, important it is to have well, the open land for wildlife, obviously, and not develop it. And then also just carbon sequestration and, you know, ha- working. So now we're kind of rapidly, I don't know, addicted to the idea of soil health and regenerative <laughs> agriculture. <laughs> So that's that's kind of what. So then the process of the cheese making came from. So we got sheep, then we got a pony, we got another pony, and then we got a horse, and then you know we got the chickens. We were raising our own meat, raising our own food. Then got some dairy goats because my daughter wanted to milk something because she had been reading, you know, like Little House on the Prairie or something. And so her grandmother paid for the first two goats that we got, and. They were already in milk. They had just freshened. And then it was just an intense amount of milk that we had, and you can't throw it out when you watch the girls work so hard to produce it, and we worked so hard mm. to get it. So, um, you know, started making cheese. A friend of mine made sheep cheese up in Craftsbury, and uh, I had, you know, helped him out now and again over the few years, so I was aware of, you know, the phenomena of, of artisan cheese, especially in Vermont, although there were – far fewer cheesemakers in Vermont at that time that we started. And I just started in the kitchen, you know, making for ourselves and then started making more and more and then, you know, learned about the regulations and just the need for, like, you know, absolute cleanliness to make a safe product and really decided to make the step to become a licensed cheesemaker, which involved building a separate facility, you know. So over... I'm not sure. I think it took us maybe five, four years to finally really build the cheese room. We've never built anything before. (laughs) It is 
a disaster. I mean, it looks great. Um, and I was going to say an ever... incredible feat, but if you want to call it a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're very proud of it, and it is so meaningful that we have done it all. I mean, we have pictures of the kids literally mixing cement in a wheelbarrow to put the foundation in and, you know, and trying to make a slanted floor, a floor that drains to the center drain is really something intense. You learn a lot of geometry, let's just say. (laughs) (laughs) Starting from whiskey bottles under the floorboards to a a handcrafted cheese room, I think it's clear to say you've come a long way. (laughs) Um, And I can personally attest to the fact that the property, the house, the cheese room are all superb. They're gorgeous. Thank you. Um, I was going to talk about how back in the summer of 2020, we came to the farm with Catherine, our specialty cheese department manager, and something that always stuck out to me that she said when we were there was how you both talked about when being a dairy farmer, it's being like on the clock 24-7. Were you aware when you first got those first dairy goats for the girls, were you at all aware that that was how it was going to be, and were you prepared for that? I was not prepared. (laughs) I think I kind of, I mean, there's no way I could have known. I didn't grow up on a farm. I've always loved the feeling of a farm. I think I, and I just recently saw a picture. My sister had been a caretaker for someone's goat farm in northern Michigan, when I was like eight or maybe nine, and I think I spent a couple of weeks with her there, I'd kind of forgotten about it, and I just loved the rhythm of it, you know. But when actually when we got the goats, I had to talk everybody down from getting a couple of cows because I was like, there's no way I can manage a cow. <laughs> so I mean, it's like if I knew at least that much, you know, that physically I was going to be able to take care of a goat. But... um. <laughs> Yeah, I I wasn't prepared, but it didn't matter so much. You know, at that time we were homeschooling, and we were very kind of content to be home all the time. We didn't, you know, need to go away much. We had our, you know, we'd been doing a lot of traveling. So, um, you know, then I guess I wasn't prepared. The steep learning curve of caring for animals, you know, it's, it's incredible. It's very rewarding. It's also, you know, devastating. Mm. But, you know, and as I said, like, I have that caretaker personality anyhow, so that part doesn't bother me so much. I mean, it's just the overwhelming sense of responsibility that I have is the, the primary thing that I wasn't, like, aware that that's what I was taking on, that I, you know, there's the overwhelming sense of obligation I have to the animal's kind of eclipses a lot of things now, you know, and it had, I think while we were yeah. developing the business, that was really difficult was balancing family, children's needs, goats' needs, and cheese needs, and business needs, because it, it, to be honest, putting it into a business was the part that I was really not prepared for, you know, I didn't think through the part about the fact that I would be 
heretofore running a small business. (laughs) I think I just kept thinking about the science part, the animal nutrition, the genetics, the cheese chemistry, the food safety, and that was all very sciencey and something that I could study and learn and um, that I was enthralled by. And then sort of the marketing and the selling and the bookkeeping are so valuable, but just aren't sort of in my wheelhouse, as it were. So that, I say with that part, is the part that I was not prepared for. It's interesting that you were talking about all of this responsibility in the beginning, but I'm almost kind of thinking of it now, because another thing I was going to say is Catherine always tells me most people don't refer to it as crooked mile cheese. They call it Roberta's cheese. Like, they're still kind of putting it all on you. So is it actually all on you, or do you have help there on the farm? I mean, besides the goats, like. Right, yeah. The girls really do all the work. The ladies, I shouldn't call them girls, I guess. Um. (laughs) Right. I, uh, yes, it's been family, just our family, um, to date, you know, and which has been great, uh, you know, and raising kids that have to work their tails off even when they don't want to and, and, you know, that they grew up with the responsibility to the land and that they understood, you know, because we raise, we grow our own hay, so we try to be a closed loop system so that most of our inputs come from the land into the animals and then, you know, that we use their manure and everything to help regenerate the, as well as their rotational grazing to help improve the soil health. So it's been part of our family rhythm, which has been fantastic. And it's kind of a, I don't even, now the, but now the kids are grown, you know, they're in their 20s and getting far, farther flung as they grow older. So it's, they're less reliable, let's just put it that way. <laughs> we are, you know, growing more relationships outside of the family unit. We're having uh, some friends are going to come help perhaps this year in the cheese room, which will be great because that's been really just me all the time. But then the part about it being Roberta's cheese, I mean, it's we've been very private sort of about it, and we, but we're becoming much more public-facing here on the farm. Part of it and what it, you know, helped promote the idea for us to create the business was to provide good food for our neighbors. So the idea of being local and being able to produce something that people in my immediate area can afford to buy and enjoy is paramount. So our margin, you know, our profit margins are incredibly thin, but I like to keep, you know, I'm trying to keep them that mm-hmm. way as much as I can to make it available to our, our immediate neighbors. And, I mean, and we have developed, like, a focus for our business and just everything. The farm is a, is a real intimate relationship with our customers. Yeah, yeah. They, they feel like they know you enough to call you right. Roberta and to call it Roberta Seas instead of, I don't know, you... You don't know. An anonymous. Yeah. And that was a heat, like, to sell at the co-op, which has been fantastic. And it, especially because I've been involved with the farmer's market, you know, in the area. So I, I know enough people directly and personally that to make the leap then to sell it sort of anonymously in a wholesale situation wasn't as jarring. It, it felt, it, you know, it feels a lot more like a sequence I can understand because 
the thought mm-hmm. of like shipping off a product to some unknown place to be sold you know it, that's a whole that's a that's another step and that we are that we are making but it, it that is another sort of a, a less intimate transaction than than we've been involved with before and then we we have our farm stand at the house so that's also so very nice now that people can come buy cheese here visit the goats as you know (laughs) (laughs) and then you know take advantage of other things that we have to offer from the farm as well as the goat cheese and let's talk a little bit more about the goats about the goats yeah so you talk about how the best cheese starts with the careful guarding of the health and happiness of the dairy goats. What makes a goat healthy and happy? What does that mean to you? I mean, really, I ha- it's boring, but nutrition is just the foundation. You know, they they need to be fed just like humans. They need quality feed. And they need the food that they need, you know, for their particular body system. And then along with that is the ability to act like a goat so that they can browse, they can meander, they can get into the sunshine or the shade. And, you know, so all our goats, they go outside all the time. And as you know, they're a little bit free range, which we keep working on. But so they're, they're healthy because of the, of just basic care. And then they're happy because they get to act like a goat. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have to act like a, I don't know, <laughs> Yeah, like a person. Well, they, yeah. they don't have to take taxes. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, there are a lot of the large, especially goat dairies, they'll be basically a confined system so that they are only eating dry hay and don't don't get to go outside and graze or browse. And so our goats graze and browse on a rotational basis, and goats are natural browsers rather than than grass eaters or grazers. They like things that are about head high. So uh, we have the perfect, you know, overgrown. We have some forest that has been uh, heavily logged, so it's perfect for them to get in there and, and, and eat everything up. But a lot of commercial goat berries, large commercial goat berries, the goats are always inside. Um, they may get to go outside to, you know, be in the sunshine or run around a little bit, but they're only fed inside dry, dry matter rather than being able to browse to help control uh, parasites that they are subject to. And if I'm remembering correctly from being there, it's kind of like the the goats choose their own time to to wander into which grazing sites. Like, but you're not telling them when to go they're just like one second they'll be by the road and then all of a sudden they are all, all of them are like hey you know would be good let's let's go over here on Definitely. the other side of the road the good they have their rhythms i mean we have our rhythms that we impose on them you know and i keep them inside at night because we do have coyotes and i would never get any sleep if i didn't tuck them in you know <laughs> <laughs> But, right, so, I mean, it's not like they get to act the way they want all the time, of course. We need to get them on the milk stand and, and get the milk out. But uh, they do definitely have, and it's and that's so much fun to watch. And then every year, you know, as the new goats grow up and the older goats, like, become less dominant, it's so fun to watch their new 
relationships, there's, you know, always one or two bossy nannies and, you know, who's in charge and who's getting picked on, you know, and you always have to kind of (laughs) monitor. It's like my classroom management skills are probably the second most important thing I have here as a farmer. (laughs) So we talked about the goat's happiness, but something that makes me very happy was to learn about your process for naming the milking goats and then what their names end up being. So can you share with everyone else why your goats' names are so special? Well, so the goats' name, like everybody, typically people say to name them alphabetically so you know who comes from who. But, again, because we started with children and so they get to decide everything, we have a theme every year. So we've had, I think the first year was like goddesses, you know, so we had Io and, you know, Athena and all these. And then we've had poets, so Emily and Sylvia. And we had suffragettes one year. Depends on what the kids have been studying. So then we had like the Senate Live Comedians one year. Then we had the Supreme Court justices a couple of years ago. We only were keeping five, which this is manageable because we don't keep that many <laughs> every, every year. That's <laughs> about eight or ten, so we only have to come up with that many names. Last year was comets in honor of the Neowise comet that was so meaningful to see. Named right, and the year before that was like inspiring women of color. So we have the Oprah and Meghan Markle and Serena. Last year, they have Neo Wise and a bunch of really weird names from last year. And then for 2021, to be honest, we're recording this, that we just had our first goat last night, and <gasps> we haven't decided on a theme. So I'm not sure what we're going to come up with for 2021. Oh, well, we will all be on the edge of our seats. To see, that's yeah, that's to it. Hear. <laughs> yeah, but we finally decided. Yes, and kind of on that theme, how can people stay in touch with you and up to date with you and the goats and everything happening on the farm? Yeah, so well, we are sporadically active on Facebook and Instagram, just click mile cheese. We have started uh, like an email, you know, like a monthly newsletter so people can go onto our website and subscribe to that if they want to hear more, you know, about what's going on and who's doing what. Uh, they can come visit, visit the farm stand and pet some goats. We'll have, we have little, little setups so you can feed them a little bit. And then uh, the farmer's markets in the area, Littleton Farmer's Market will be there on Sundays through the summer, St. Johnsbury Farmer's Market on Saturdays. And as always at the co-op in Littleton. Woo! All right, Roberta, thank you so much for coming on. Um, wishing the best to you and all the lovely ladies on the farm. And tell them thank you for us, too. I will. I will go right out and let them know. (laughs) Hey, everyone. 
right now we have Bridget of Bent Fork Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire on the podcast with us. Bridget, thanks for being on here today. Thanks so much for having me. So I think before we talk about anything else, we have to address your name. So how did you come up with the Bent Fork Farm name? And then maybe in there, if you could give us a little bit about how the farm came to be. So when we started out, we were actually living in Lancaster, um, a few towns north of where we are now. And we were living in a rented house. It was actually an old school house, very cool. But we were living in a rented house out there and had a big home garden. And I had wanted to expand that and start selling vegetables and flowers at the farmer's market in Lancaster. So we asked a couple of our neighbors if we could expand into their hayfield across the street and they ever so graciously let us so we tilled up about half an acre over there and during the like massive rototilling project we flung up like an old kitchen fork and it was all mangled and we're like oh bent fork bent fork farm we made the sign and she like can't change your name after you make the sign so that's how it came about <laughs> that's so funny i never would have guessed that's where it came from. but And now at our new place in Bethlehem, it's still very applicable because there's hella rocks here. So any fork you try and dig a carrot with is, like, definitely going to get bent. So yeah, bring it to yourself. <laughs> Maybe more becomes, like, a slotted spoon type. Yeah, yeah. Kitchen utensil. <laughs> so how did you decide to expand? Did you have experience in the past? Was this like a lifelong dream of yours? Yeah, I guess it's always been sort of on our radar. Um, I'd been working on farms for since I got out of college. So at that point, it was, you know, maybe seven years. And we had been working for Mount Cabot Maple in Lancaster during the wintertime. So the summer was kind of kind of a slower season, more of the like packaging and salesmanship. So there was like a little bit of freedom there and something that I always wanted to do. So we decided to go for it. And here you are. And here we are, yeah. So what can you generally find growing on the farm maybe each season? Um, We really do the full range of mixed veggies. We offer a CSA, so I think that sort of necessitates that we have a huge variety, like, from spring through fall. So we specialize definitely in salad greens, heirloom tomatoes. Definitely cut flowers are a big part of our market stand. But anytime you come to our market stand at Farmer's Market, you'll find something new and exciting. So basically, if you want to make, like, a really good salad, we know who to go to. Definitely. Where are your spot? <laughs> so as we just established, you grow such a variety of fresh, organic produce and flowers, which came first? Like, was the is the flowers or the produce and was one, like, the natural addition? Um, or did it take a while before you were selling both produce and flowers? Um, right from that first summer that we started farming, it was both flowers and vegetables. And I just really love both of those things. I'm really passionate about growing food and then the flowers are just a really awesome creative outlet. Like I I love designing a market stand at Farmer's Market, and 
I love putting different colors together and textures and shapes and sizes together for mix bouquets that we sell too. So I think it's just an expansion of the aesthetic, I guess, adding the flowers in. Yeah, I like that expansion of the aesthetic. And you said this phrase of designing a market stand. Like, can you talk a little bit more about what that is and like what goes into it? I don't think most people realize that that's like a, an actual process you have to go through. Yeah, it's like, I think it's like one of like the funnest things about farming is like designing a, a market stand each week because it's like putting all of your work on display in a beautiful way. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a lot of like practical things like you want it to be like shoppable and, you know, make sense to the per- person that's walking through. But it's also really fun. You get to, you know, like, mix in where your like leafy fluffy kales are with red to make you know like you're mixing colors and textures and mounding them a certain way (laughs) it's just really fun (laughs) it's like a little museum display every week of all the stuff that you've been doing that does sound really cool and I think that sounds like something I would really have fun doing but I'm sure a lot of people don't think about all of the thought that went into it they're just like oh yeah they threw it out there but Yeah, yeah, and there's, like, a certain person who doesn't appreciate, but every week at market, you'll get somebody who's like, wow, your stand is just so beautiful, and I love that. (laughs) I love that people can, like, appreciate how their food looks, too, rather than just seeing it as a commodity. You know, it's not the most important thing about the whole thing, but seeing it as, as like, a beautiful thing, I think, is really cool. No, yeah, I've definitely, especially in recent years, come to the idea that, like, my food is going to taste better if it looks better, not even, like, in the sense of, like, I need the most perfect carrot, but, like, if I'm going to make, like, a salad, like, I'm going to, like, line those vegetables up and, like, make that rainbow. And, like, that's Definitely. Just, like, how it appeals to my taste buds. Definitely. And it just, it's part of the whole, you know, appreciating the food that is coming before you, too, you know? I yeah. think that if there's a service that we can do in that sense, I think that is valuable. Well, I'm glad at least someone else out there is appreciating it as much as you and me. And you describe your food as being grown as sustainably and ethically as possible. Can you elaborate more on what that means and what that means to you? Yeah. So at the very basic level, I want anywhere on our farm be to be a place where our kids could wander out and pick something and I wouldn't have to police it. So so in the most basic sense, we just want our kids to be able to go out into the garden and pick whatever they want, pop it in their mouth at any time. But for me, the whole regenerative agriculture thing and all the labels that get thrown around just mean trying to farm in a way that's working with nature, which sounds really hippy-dippy and, you know, vague, but... Everything we do, I'm looking at it and seeing how we can do it better the next time so we're not fighting uphill. So if we smother a row before replanting it instead of rototilling it, the next crop has less weeds and seems to grow better. You know, every every step along the way, I just want to be observing and seeing how we can do things less disruptively in the garden. And that's sort of how we're currently doing things, which I would describe as low-till. We do do some amount of tillage still, but we're trying to reduce that because we've been noticing overall things respond better to less disruption. 
do a lot of composting. I really believe in that um, and helping build the biome in the soil and using that as a as the main avenue of fertilization. But really, like, I am not ready to write a book on this. <laughs> I, like, I am learning every year, and that's what I think is so cool about it. Uh, we're a very human-scaled farm, so I'm not looking at my acres and acres of crops from on top of a tractor and, you know, hauling in my bushels and bushels of food. Every single plant <laughs> is, like, touched by our hands, and we're, you know, hoeing, hand thinning. It's, you know, very personal. So I think that that really helps helps you learn. I don't know. It. Yeah, and I think that brings that brings so much to the final product too. Like knowing on the consumer side of things that like it's not this big scale operation. It's people are individually like like you can think about when you buy that bag of mixed greens. You're like Bridget and her family like looked at this specific plant and like made sure it was okay. Yeah, exactly. Just like leaving it out. Exactly. And I think the uh-huh. scale that we're growing on, it really it, it it lets you become that well acquainted with everything and it lets you see all the failures really close up and magnified. <laughs> so every 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 little failure is like very informative. It doesn't get missed, you know. Mm. But on this kind of trend of lifelong learning going back so you have a degree in anthropology from san jose state university if you couldn't tell i did my research slash stalking (laughs) and in your bio you talked about taking a break from academia to volunteer on an organic farm in arizona thinking back what was it that inspired you to volunteer with the farm? Um, I guess it had always been something I was, I thought I'd do. You know, friends of mine had woofed abroad and done similar things, and I had this, you know, hole of time to fill, and it seemed like the perfect way to, like, get out there, kind of live for free, more or less, and get some experience doing something I was interested in. And it just ended up being a very, I guess, like, life-changing experience. It, like, changed the whole trajectory of everything. Well, I was going to say, like, at that point, did you have any idea that this would become, like, your life's work? Or is it just like, oh, I'll I'll do this and then I'll I'll go back to whatever I was doing before? Yeah, no, yeah, it was just, you know, the first stepping. And it wasn't like I went to work on that farm and I was like, yes, I'm going to be a farmer. But it was more, you know, it it aroused some kind of, like, passion in me to continue doing that. Mm Yeah, I mean, I guess working on that farm, it was just, it was really cool because there was an awesome woman who owned it, who was being a mom at the same time, running this farm, and it was, she was just an interesting person in general. So I think it helped inspire the whole, all the later ventures. Yeah, would you consider her like a role model at that time? Yeah, definitely. She's just, she was one of those people who wore so many hats that, you know, people who, she was one of those people who can, she was good at a lot of different things that weren't necessarily, like, connected. She was a writer, she was a farmer, she was a mom, and she did all of those things, like, very gracefully, and it was very admirable. Yeah, I definitely admire people who have, like, all of these unconnected, so to speak, talents that they have and then somehow make them all work together. 
Um, in addition to your female boss, if you have, like, at that time, other female coworkers or other mentors, or was it just kind of the two of you with a lot of men? Yeah. Um, I guess since I've started farming, it, I feel like my entire experience working in small farms in general has been I've been surrounded by really awesome women who are doing awesome things. It's like, it's been incredible that way. Yeah, every farm I've worked on has been, has either had a woman running it or the core of the workforce has been young women who are learning to farm also. And I think that's, it seems like that's really true of the whole small farming movement right now everywhere. And I think that's really awesome. That is awesome. So you would say, like, even today you still have either female role models or female, like, colleagues to yeah, talk about? Yeah, with? absolutely. Absolutely. And I, um, I think it's cool because all of these women who are farming now are doing the same thing. Like, they're wearing a lot of different hats. They're being moms. They're running businesses. They're trying to farm, which is in itself like an all-consuming task (laughs) so there's a lot of community around that and I really enjoy that about farming yes I was going to say that a lot of women out there not just in farming but feel like they're always hunting for that like work-life balance that like idea that you can do it all but your co-workers are also your family and you literally live at work so do you feel like do you feel like you get that like balance between the quote unquote work and then the the other life part? Like do you like having everything so intertwined? I do and I don't. It's a it's a tricky question because some days you know, sometimes during the season I like we're we're out there, we're working, I look at my kids and I feel so happy that I'm they have this awesome idyllic life where they can run through rows and eat peas off the bush, you know. And then other times I'm feeling like I am this workaholic mom who's every waking hour I'm hustling to get something done and in that sense it feels like I'm you know, the like nineties movie workaholic mom who like never sees her kids except for I'm like at home instead of running to the office. So it's it's tricky. I know a lot of moms deal with the same thing. And I don't I like I don't know <laughs> what the yeah. what the answer to it all is. Do you think there is like an answer to it or is it just like a a requirement of the job or of the life like do you, are you looking for it to be like something that is eventually quote-unquote solved yeah I don't know I guess looking in the future like when me and my husband Ben talk we're like we'd like to have like some amount of freedom like worked into the summer where at this point there's like really not so uh, maybe in the future that involves more employees that can take some of that responsibility off their shoulders or scaling down some things and scaling up others. And I think the where we are right now, we're just in this sort of growing pain segment of our farm business that 
things are a little muddled. <laughs> but, you know, we make it work. And I think the kids are generally happy. You know, it's you know, it's just dealing with your own mental health and everyone around you is at the same time that it can get tricky yeah. for sure. And I, I, it's funny and also maybe serendipitous that I think a lot of families are kind of experiencing or have experienced the same things you have in the past year with everyone all of a sudden working from home and having mm-hmm. to, like, have that work-life balance right up in this confined phase where where before it was such a separation, but now they're kind of seeing it as you do where all of it's operating in the homes. So I think everyone out there can definitely relate to what you're talking about. Yes, yes. I think that is so true. There's just so many layers of things going on at the same time, especially during the height of summer, that you're just constantly frazzled because there's so many things that you're trying to keep track of, whether it's like packing CSA boxes and but you have to drive a kid to school at the same time. You know, schedules are overlapping and then people need snacks, you know, <laughs> everything is just happening. <laughs> but speaking of snacks, you talked about starting Bent Fork with the intention of growing fresh food for your family, which now includes three kids. And we've already established that they are all very good at eating the the product. <laughs> I guess I could say. They um, definitely are. Do they pitch in in other ways, or are they just the designated taste testers? They're very enthusiastic helpers with very short attention spans. (laughs) (laughs) I I would say that, like, it's really cool. It's really one of my favorite things about this whole farming venture is that we get to watch our kids, like, grow up with it. And it's been awesome. You know, when my oldest, Wendell, is five now, so she's been, you know, had five years of seed starting and transplanting and greenhouse watering and it's really cool to like watch the evolution of like how she understands how things grow and her like excitement level about a bean seed sprouting you know it's it's really magical it like it it keeps the magic of the actual growing very much alive and I love it for that that's awesome and and maybe that will work into the eventual work-life balance of, like, the kids will just be, you know, maybe around 10, 12, and they can just boss around (laughs) and give some time for mom and dad. Very ideal. Be very ideal. (laughs) So one last thing before I let you go, maybe two things. Can you tell everyone, first, how they can stay up to date with you and the family and the farm and then also, where slash how they can get Bent Fork Farm products aside from the the Littleton Food Co-op. So if you want to stay up to date, you can follow us on Instagram at Bent Fork Farm, on Facebook, and you can check our website for updates from time to time at bentforkfarm.com. And you can find us every weekend through the summer at the Lancaster Farmer's Market on Saturday mornings and the Littleton Farmer's Market on Sunday mornings. And our products are also at the Root Cellar Marketplace in Lancaster. And we are opening a farm stand as of the summer of 2021. So produce will be available at our farm 
in Bethlehem. And the best way would be to check on Instagram for updates about that. And we also have a summer CSA. That's 18 weeks of fresh vegetables, June through October. And we serve families in Bethlehem, Littleton, and Lancaster with two pickup locations. That's awesome. Two pickup locations? Uh, sign me up. But thank you so much, Bridget, for coming on today and talking about all this fun stuff. It's great to hear more behind the minds of Bentford Farming and, and really solve that mystery of where that name came from. Thanks so much for having me. Our next guest up on the podcast today is Heidi. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who aren't familiar with you or your business, can you give us like a quick crash course overview of Mountain Roots Farm? Yep. So Mountain Roots, I'm um, located in Bethlehem. I'm a flower farm predominantly. I sell my flowers at the Littleton Food Co-op. I go to the farmer's market. I do wedding design services, sell my cut flowers to florists. So just try to explore as many avenues as possible. And then I also bake. So I bake sourdough bread, croissants, cookies, that sort of thing. And that complements my flowers at the farmer's market every Sunday in the summer. I can speak from experience that Heidi bakes everything you could dream of and then the things you could never think you could dream of. That's all great. <laughs> but Thank how you. Become, yeah. How did you become interested in being a farmer and doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I became interested in the idea of sustainable agriculture in college um, and started taking some courses that talked about just the impact of sustainable farming in the world right now. And I started finding internships in the summer to work on organic farms in my area. And then after college, kind of just was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life and thought, let me try farming again. So I interned for a season on a farm in Alaska and just completely fell in love with it. So I actually spent a few seasons managing that farm. And that was a veggie farm. We did CSAs and farmers markets. And then found my way back to New England. That's where I grew up. I grew up in New Hampshire. And started looking for my own property. So it's kind of how I ended up in uh, the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And I have a very kind of, I guess, in a way, a limited knowledge of farming where it's all sort of cold climate based and found that flowers were just doing pretty well in the soil up here and it was a way of extending my season and just sort of fell in love with them. So it's been a a gradual process but I guess I've been farming for over 10 plus years now um, so it's been pretty cool. That's incredible and I just have to say I have always compared the climate of northern New Hampshire to Alaska, um, maybe in a more hypothetical way, but just hearing the transferable skills, like, literally, um, you feel very validated. Yeah, it's pretty similar. It's like a little mini Alaska up here, yet it's close to my family, so it kind of worked out perfectly. (laughs) 
<laughs> nice. The will our new um, slogan will be the Alaska of the East Coast. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so let's say I'm sure there's a whole new crop of young women out there right now at the mm. same place you were, you know, like in college, just getting yeah. out of college, and maybe they're thinking about this kind of the same thing that you were. Do you have mm-hmm. any advice for the young women out there who are, like, starting to to develop that interest in farming that you had? Yeah, um, yeah, I think it could be sort of transferable to, to anything that you're interested in. I was just finding myself really trying to figure out what my interests were, what made me happy, what sort of vision I had for my life. And I think the only way you can do it, you can figure that out, is just get out there and do it. And so, yeah, take risks, try to learn new things, read a lot of books, but just try to find those experiences that are open to you. And, I mean, one thing that I found, I really was interested in farming, but then it kind of just took me on its own path. I actually didn't really know that I'd be interested in flower farming at all. And my focus was just sort of to always do what was exciting to me, what made me happy, and just sort of letting it guide me. And I know I have a lot to learn, and it's probably going to take me maybe in a path that I can't even see right now. But if you just take that first step forward, start kind of exploring what's interesting to you, I think you'll be pretty excited to see where where life takes you, probably going to be unexpected. But if you're interested in farming specifically, yeah, just say, you know, try to find an apprenticeship, an internship, get your hands dirty and see if it's something that that vibes with you. And um, there's all different types of of farming. I would actually consider my farm kind of more of a a large garden. It's, um, It's probably not like how some farmers would grow their crops. <laughs> so I just sort of figured out what worked best for me and what systems worked best for me. And I'm sure it'll change and evolve over time too. But yeah. That all sounds like really great advice. And I think <sighs> just like what I love what you're saying about like, you know, just go after it, try something and don't be afraid of where it's going to take you. I think especially nowadays, like, it it can be kind of dangerous to get yourself in this, like, very planned state of mind. Mm. If you deviate from the plan, everything's gone wrong, whereas, like, in reality, I think it's, like you're saying, it's better to have, like, sort of this, maybe a loose plan, but realize that going off plan and finding something new isn't bad. It can, in fact, be really, really great. So thank you for all that. Yeah. And I'd say, like, you know, don't be afraid of messing up and making mistakes. And we've made, like, a million mistakes over the years. And when we first, um, my husband, when I say we, I mean my husband, Kevin, and I, when we bought, bought Mountain Roots, we thought we wanted to be a full diet farm. So we started raising veggies. We were raising all different types of animals a little bit of flowers and we spent a few years focusing more on animals. Yeah, it just was sort of like what we what we thought we wanted our farm to be and learned pretty quickly that that was not right for us. And so kind of had to sell off our animals, 
start from scratch, kind of rebrand, start over. So sometimes I get frustrated about sort of where my business is for how many years we've been at it, but it's one of those things. It's like you just have to try, see if it works. If it doesn't, you can always start over or pivot. Just don't don't be afraid to at least give it a try and just sort of figure out what, what works best for you in your life. Yeah, because, I mean, you also don't want to be really – far and advanced into something that you don't like or like you totally isn't wrong isn't right for you that's like yeah yeah not good either yeah so Um. sometimes take like those baby steps don't you know it's fine to jump fully in it's also fine to just take little baby steps in that direction (laughs) and test the waters first I like that but speaking of pivoting so as you said we sell some of your arrangements uh flower arrangements at the co-op, but you also mentioned that you sell thread and baked goods. So which came first, like the baking, the flowers? How did that come to be paired together? Yeah, so um, back the the very first season that we I was farming, um, we went to the Bethlehem Farmer's Market, and I was super behind in my season. I had kale when probably other farmers already had tomatoes and cucumbers. It was it was kind of sad. Um, we had a little bit of flowers, and I was trying to brainstorm ways to kind of attract people over to our, our booth because we didn't have a lot that we were competing with otherwise. And so I started baking with my vegetables and um, and local fruit, and then it just sort of started taking off. And now it's like its own beast, and I would say that the baking makes up 50% of uh, Mountain Roots farm business, um, and then the other half is the flower sales. So it, they kind of came to be at the same time, but I would say that really the baking has helped kind of carry the farm through those changes that I just sort of mentioned. Um, that's always been a consistent or a constant um, is the baking, and it it really helped helped us when we were going through those those transitions. And um, yeah, it's something that I love as well. So it's trying to figure out how to do it all is tough. So, <laughs> but but yeah, that's so funny that it's like a a fifty fifty split. I mean, that's what I would have guessed, but I was ready to be surprised and find out it was something else. But I'm sure everyone is glad that the baking has has stuck around and then complements yeah. the flowers make like for a full sensory experience. Focusing a little bit more on the flowers, getting into the mm. the weeds a little bit, no pun intended. Can you tell us like what what is someone getting? What is someone really choosing when they choose mm-hmm. like this local homemade bouquet of flowers like yours over Mm -hmm. that kind of like generic one you see at the the regular grocery store like everyone can kind of picture Mm -hmm. that one um but what are you actually getting maybe besides flowers when you're getting yours yep totally yeah so I hope that you know I hope you find that the local flowers are you know, more beautiful um, and more exciting and have some really 
cool, fun, unique varieties that you can't find in the grocery store bouquet. But then um, even more so, I mean, not only are you supporting a young farmer and, you know, helping grow my dreams and, you know, keep keep me afoot, you're also really supporting the environment. When you're buying those local flowers and local veggies, we grow our produce and our flowers sustainably as possible. We're nurturing the land, nurturing the birds and bees that, that live on the property. And then it's making it so that you your flowers have a smaller carbon footprint. They're not getting flown from California, but also South America or across the whole world. So you're really, when you're buying those local flowers, you're really making an impact with your dollar. You're helping the environment. You're helping a young farmer. And then hopefully getting a more beautiful flower experience as well. I'm really glad, glad that you brought up the point about the environment. That's something that I never really thought about. You know, um, mm-hmm. we talk about it a lot with your vegetables and your produce, um, your meat and things like that. But it, it, mm-hmm. it's the true, it's the same for everything. So thank you for bringing that up. What I was going to bring up is when I look at your bouquets, I see so much creativity, so much artistry in there. Mm. Have you always considered yourself an artistic person? And could you maybe walk us through the thought process when you're putting together something like a bouquet you'd find uh, at the co-op? Yeah, it's cool. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I've always loved art. I've always taken art classes and loved drawing. And so that's like another thing that really drew me to flower farming was just that not only are you growing something and nurturing the land, but then you're also getting this full artistic experience and expression too. So I felt like that was something that was kind of missing in my life. And um, the flowers have really helped – you know, fill that that void. When I'm creating a bouquet, whether it's for a wedding or for the Littleton Food Co-op, I'm first looking at what's really beautiful in the field at the time, and then going out and harvesting that morning. I'm looking at colors and different textures and seeing what, what pairs nicely together. I'm thinking about focal flowers, which are like the really big showcase flowers, and pairing them with you call them accent flowers, which complement those. Um, and thinking about what greenery and and grasses look good with that, and then trying to create all sorts of different textures and heights and and yeah, just just making it so that it's a really nice, well balanced bouquet for you to enjoy. And it's nice that people pick up on that. It's a lot of thought and work that goes into every bouquet um, that you're buying. And, yeah, they all all have a little bit of, you know, special attention given to them. So is my bouquet going to look different if I buy it in, let's say, May versus August versus, I don't know, October, if they go that yeah. far? Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what, what's, what's the time frame for those, maybe, let's say, the um, – focal flowers like what's the variety like yep totally so there are different seasons for flowers just like with vegetables in the springtime um, a lot of the flowers that are coming up are bulbs that I planted the fall before so early spring you're going to see tulips you're going to see daffodils um, and those have a full six plus months of planning and work that went into it and 
then you're going to go um, transfer sort of in the spring to more perennials. So that's when you're going to see the peonies starting to bloom, other perennials, which are just um, plants that keep coming back year after year. Yeah, it kind of just varies throughout the season. There's different growing days for flowers. So there's short day flowers that that means that they they come to maturity a lot quicker. And then there's longer day varieties. So that means there's um, a lot more days that go into the plant flowering. So in July and early August, you'll get those quicker crops that are coming in. That might be like snapdragons and stock and sunflowers. And in August, uh, the flowers that I've been nurturing and cultivating sometimes since early March, those are finally mature. Um, and you'll see dahlias and zinnias, um, lysianthus, that those take months and months until they're mature. So you're really getting a, a nice variety through the season. Every week the flowers are going to be different. And just so much time and love and planning goes into each one of those bouquets. I can obviously tell that so much hard work and love goes into them, but I would have never known something like the difference between a long versus a short day and all of that. So that was really cool to hear. <laughs> um, so how often do you decide to try growing a new variety? Is it a decision more like, let's see what happens, you know, like we were talking about, Mm-hmm. Um, being on your life plan or or does it is it like a agonizing decision that you put a lot of thought into yeah <laughs> I mean I love just trying things out I'm sure sometimes I should put more research in <laughs> to what I do um and because of that I I do sometimes make mistakes but then sometimes I have these unexpected successes so I Usually what I do is um, if I want to try something new, I'll just buy a small number of seeds or um, a small number of, of plugs. So plugs are little plants that sometimes a greenhouse will start for you, give you a little head start. Or you might buy bulbs for the fall to try a new crop of, of tulips. So I'll just buy a small amount and devote um, a small space to those varieties and then give it a try, see how it goes. And if it's a success, then I'll do a bigger investment the next year in growing more of those. And if it's a failure, I won't I won't necessarily scrap it. I'll just try to adjust, grow a small amount again, see if that technique works, and then hopefully the next year take that bigger step forward. So it makes it fun. I'm always trying to learn new things and push myself without, you know, taking a huge financial or time risk. But I I do love experimenting and always, like, trying something different every year. That's so funny that when you were talking, when you were sharing your answer, what I was really thinking of was, again, what we talked about in the beginning where you were saying it's okay to take those baby steps and it sounds Mm -hmm. like you're really, you're doing that there. Do you feel like you do that sort of decision-making process for your non-farming decisions, like in the rest of your your life, follow the same process, or is it completely different? Probably, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that I'm kind of starting to learn about myself is that I almost like trying something new too often. So (laughs) 
sometimes I need to, to say, this works. Let's, like, try to make this an, an annual thing instead of, like, trying a, a whole new, like, mixing up the whole plan every single year. But, yeah, I like to take r- some risks, but calculated small risks. <laughs> Speaking of that, if someone wants to try taking a new baby risk and getting either Mountain Root Farm flowers or some of your delicious baked goods, where can they find them besides the Littleton Food Co-op? So I will be doing the Littleton Farmer's Market again this year. So that's every Sunday starting in June. And that you can find bouquets, but also um, the full array of baked goods. For now, I'm probably going to stick with um, baked goods just on those Sundays once the farmer's market starts and the flowers day. Yeah, so you can find them at the farmer's market, the co-op. I'm doing um, a CSA this year. So that is a weekly bouquet or bouquets that you get starting in July and going all the way through the end of August. So that's something, a way to get my flowers every week. So People are always feel can feel free to, to reach out in the summer, and I can put something special together for you. But it's always good to, if you have social media, follow Mountain Roots Farm on Facebook or Instagram, and then I usually update um, everybody on on what what's new, where to find me if I'm doing a little pop up for for Mother's Day or Easter. So try to make those announcements there. Perfect. You hear, heard it here, everyone. Go follow Mountain Roots Farm on all of your social media. Even if you aren't planning on buying anything right now, which, I mean, you definitely should, you can still <laughs> keep up with what Heidi's doing and see all the beautiful arrangements. Make your feed just a little bit brighter. But, Heidi, thank you for, so much for coming on today. This was really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. notice we opted out of featuring a product of the week this week. Instead, I want to encourage you to buy the products of the women featured here today. All of the business owners we talked to are also hyper-local, less than 15 miles away from the co-op, so it's like a double good deed you're doing. You can find salad greens from Bridget at Bent Fork Farm, seasonal flowers from Heidi at Mountain Roots, and cheese from Roberta at Crooked Mile Cheese, all at the Littleton Food Co-op in their dedicated departments. Thank you again to all of these amazing people for talking with me. And thank you again to all of you for listening. We want to hear all of your input, questions, and comments about the show. You can send your product recommendations, guest suggestions, or most cooperative stories to marketing at littletoncoop.org or to any of our social media pages. Make sure you also give this a thumbs up, a heart, or a like on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it be SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Plus, you can give us a review if you're feeling extra generous. Until next time, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad.
That's Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime, just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.